Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your live local news from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Republican state lawmakers have revived a proposal to introduce tax cuts for most people in Wisconsin. The nearly $3 billion tax cut would cut state income taxes for about 95% of taxpayers, reports the Associated Press, using the state's projected budget surplus. It would lower the tax rate from 5.3% to 4.4% for individuals making between roughly $27,600 and $304,000. A second part of their plan would cap the tax on retirement income for people over the age of 67. The Republican proposal is virtually the same plan that was previously vetoed by Governor Evers in June. It's expected that Evers will consider big tax cuts if the Republicans would accept additional support uh, for child care and funds for the UW system, two key issues that have so far divided the Democratic governor and Republican legislature. Speaking of which, Republican lawmakers are reportedly circulating their own series of bills aimed at helping the state's child care industry. The bills make a series of tweaks to child care issues. One proposal would create reimbursement accounts parents could use to cover child care expenses. Another would provide loans to help child care centers renovate facilities. A third would create a new type of licensed child care, and yet one more would lower the minimum age of child care assistance to 16. The proposals don't address the key child care issue that Democrats have been demanding, that is to extend the state's Child Care Counts program, which has been funded using pandemic relief money that expires at the end of the year. That program has been used to bolster an industry that experts say is in crisis for families struggling to find providers, providers struggling to keep their doors open, and employees struggling to get paid a fair wage. Liberal attorneys in two redistricting cases filed with the state Supreme Court uh, say they have no problem with the justice who's vowed to end rigged maps staying on their case. No surprise, the attorneys who are asking the state Supreme Court to draw new legislative electoral maps on a hurried schedule uh, say the recusal of Justice Janet Protasewicz would be quite, would be, quote, contrary to her duties as a justice, unquote. The filings come after opposing counsel in the cases, representing Republicans, have asked the newest state Supreme Court justice to recuse herself from hearing the redistricting lawsuits. It's up to the state Supreme Court justices to decide whether or not to recuse themselves. But Protasewicz could face the possibility of impeachment from the Republican legislature if she doesn't recuse herself. Impeachment by the legislature would take a simple majority vote in the Assembly and a two-thirds vote in the Senate. The course of action has been publicly floated by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. A cancer treatment manufacturer has completed its migration from California to Madison. That's according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The company, Accuray, makes radiotherapy machines, and it's moved its headquarters from Sunnyvale, California, to Madison. The concern employs about 300 Wisconsinites out of a total of 1,000 staff. Yesterday, it held a celebration to market the expansion of its manufacturing facility and training center. A community meeting over conditions and frequent calls for police intervention at a Far East Side affordable housing complex is underway tonight, reports the Capital Times. 
The hybrid virtual and in-person meeting over the Meadowlands Apartments began at 5.30 p.m. The city declared the apartment block a chronic public nuisance earlier this spring, uh, also reports the Capital Times, after more than 150 calls for police service in a two-month period this summer. That action requires the owner of the apartment building, KCG Development, to address ongoing issues at the apartment building. An apartment fire on Madison's north side in the early hours of this morning has left seven people displaced. The Madison Fire Department says that the fire on Brentwood Parkway caused an estimated $200,000 in damage, according to NBC15. The months-long detours, lane closings, and heavy construction of Atwood Avenue along Olbrick Park may soon be coming to an end. For three months, eastsiders in Lake Edge, Eastmoreland, and Monona have had to take long detours, adding miles to trips downtown. But the relief is only for folks driving downtown. Starting Friday night, traffic will... um, will two-way between Walter Street and Fair Oaks. Each way will be a single lane. However, there will still be no access to Atwood Avenue from Walter Street to Cottage Grove Road if you're traveling from downtown to the east side called Outbound. These drivers will continue to use the detour. Also note that the multi-use path for pedestrians and bikers on the lake lakeside of Atwood will continue to be closed. And those are the headlines for this evening. Out on to the rest of the day's top stories. Ready or not, it's back to school season. Students at Madison College are already back at school as of a couple of days ago. Meanwhile, students at UW Madison start syllabus week next Wednesday. So, how are students feeling about getting back into the classroom? We sent our reporter, Diego Alegria, to State Street this afternoon. He asked students, parents, and instructors how the back-to-school is going. Uh, my name is Sam Totsky. Uh, yeah, I'm a new incoming freshman. I'm planning on majoring in chemical engineering. So I really enjoyed chemistry in high school, and I'm taking this class called Science and Storytelling that I don't really know what it's about, but I'm excited to learn. My name is Sherry Becker. I'm a nurse. I work for the VA Office of Inspector General. Well, this is my youngest son, and I'm dropping him off for his freshman year, so it's been really hard. (laughs) My name is B. Dowling. I'm a PhD student. I major in Chinese linguistics. This fall, I'm taking the independent dissertation research course, so that's a course with my instructor. I'll be meeting with him each week. This semester I'll be teaching Chinese 101, so that's the introductory elementary level course which exposes students to roughly 200 characters and the sound system of the Chinese language. And hopefully by the end of the three months they will have some basic conversation skills. Hello, my name is George Walker. I'm an undergrad. I'm an incoming freshman. Uh, I'm excited. It's my uh, first time here for real this time. Took some classes over the summer, but I'm excited to really get to learning. I have an advanced calculus class I'm excited for. I think it's either that one or there's this uh, African-American studies class. Um, it's between like the relationship between music from like the 1960s to now and that relationship with that and society at the time. I was really excited for it. Hey, my name is Devarshi Mahesh Vadatkar and I'm from India. So right now I'm here for my master's in data science at UW-Madison. Uh, actually, I just graduated so it feels uh, there is a bit cultural difference as compared to India. The flexibility here is too much in academic curriculums. Like in our country, we have a fixed curriculum and we need to follow that. 
but here like uh, we get various electives even we can study historical sciences food science if we want with the permission of our academic advisor so that's the one thing which i admire the most about american system uh, this fall term would be introduction to optimization i would be learning it for first time in my life and i have an interest in statistics so it would be a fun i'm hoping for a good stay in madison here for 2 years and to learn many new things and blend in with the american culture and go back to my home country <laughs> my name is carson barber i am in a graduate program it started over the summer so i'm about to start the second semester of it i'm going to start student teaching in a middle school this fall it's a teaching program so i'm excited to get some hands on experience teaching i feel excited i always liked school um there is a bit more of a workload for graduate school i would say so it's a little bit more stressful balancing a job with the coursework with student teaching but it's usually a good time so i'm excited yeah hi my name is uh, james depute uh, i'm retired <laughs> We just brought our daughter for uh, her first day at school here back to school so we moved her into the dorm and uh, there's a few items that she forgot so that's why we're coming over to Target to pick those up and uh, we're all pretty excited it's mix mixed feelings you're excited about their world uh, taking the next uh, step but you're also kind of sad to see them leave Hi my name is Emma Cooley I'm an incoming freshman this year I'm feeling pretty confident I mean I I actually just got back from a financial aid like orientation and so I found out that I'm like getting an extra 8 grand to myself after at the end so like and I'm I have an apartment here on State Street so that's a little different cuz I'm not staying in the dorms but yeah I'm taking this so I'm in the honors program so I'm taking this honors only philosophy class and I'm really excited for it Hey, my name is Coyote Savage. I'm majoring in like history specifically like history of like board games like chess. I'm a chess tutor basically. So I've taken a lot of math courses, a lot of like calculus courses essentially like quantum physics um to learn kind of like the interworkings of our society and like how um how we can apply basically science to social interactions as well as like psychology for example because you really want to get in the mind of somebody playing chess. Uh my name is Heba Huck. I'm majoring in history and political science. So I'm taking a course in Chinese history um which is something I've never studied before. Um my major requires us to take courses from like global history basically. So it's nice that I get to try out this new like area that I wouldn't study cuz I study medieval history. So <laughs> it's kind of way out of bounds of what I'd normally do. So this is actually my first year at Madison. I'm a sophomore and I'm transferring from Tufts University in Boston. Um my old university is very small, private school kind of vibe, so Madison's really different, way bigger, way more like I think active and vibrant. So I'm really excited to, you know, see what the bigger city's like. So far, I feel like Madison's really open and welcoming. Um it's really different from maybe the northeast uh vibe, but I think it's a really welcoming community. I'm excited. Reporting for WORT News. I'm Diego Alegría. A little more than a year from now, US voters will take part in the next presidential election. But the effects of the 2020 vote, overshadowed by false claims of fraud and the January 6 insurrection, still loom large. A new report calls attention to lingering threats from election denialism and what could be done to prevent similar situations. Mike Mowen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. 
Election denialism still could be a problem in a number of battleground states, including Wisconsin, in next year's race for the White House. That's according to a new analysis. The National Election Denial Risk Index separates states into three categories, highest, moderate, and lowest risk of people still spreading disinformation about voting or trying to interfere with election administration and how it might disrupt the democratic process. Brian Hinkle is a researcher with the Movement Advancement Project who authored the analysis. He says states are encouraged to put measures in place to thwart future attempts because he feels election denialism is pushing democracy to the brink of chaos. Our report shows that 157 million voters currently live in states that are at least moderate risk of election denial, jeopardizing future elections. Wisconsin faces a moderate threat, and it has come up in the fallout of former President Trump's team being accused of trying to overturn the 2020 vote. The authors highlighted the Badger State because of the close vote here. With Wisconsin having a divided government, enacting safeguards doesn't appear likely. But Hinkle says local administrators can do their part by being as transparent as possible to quell any distrust. And Hinkle says while the 2020 election was nearly three years ago, it's clear the fallout hasn't gone away. The recent indictments charging former President Trump and others with conspiracy to overturn the results of the election, among other crimes, I think highlight both the continuing threat of election denial as well as a potential path for states to hold bad actors accountable. The report says there are a number of ways states can shield themselves from denialism. That includes laws that protect election officials from threats and block unauthorized access to voting machines. Those suggestions come as Republicans in the Wisconsin legislature push to oust the state's nonpartisan elections director amid lingering rhetoric tied to the 2020 vote. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Support for this reporting was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. The time is now 6.20 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Most Madisonians are probably familiar with the Wisconsin Historical Museum on the Capitol Square. But if all goes to plan, it will be getting a major facelift along with two surrounding buildings. Alder Mike Verveer of District 4 represents this part of town. He has supported the project for a number of years. And he told our producer, Faye Parks, more about the plans earlier this afternoon. A new Wisconsin History Center, located on the Capitol Square, may be on the horizon. On Monday, the Plan Commission approved a proposal to demolish three buildings on North Carroll Street in preparation for a $160 million project. Mike Verveer is the alder for District 4, where the new facility will be located, and he supports the plan. He's agreed to speak with me about the past, present, and future of the History Museum. First of all, thank you for joining me, Mike. Oh, you're very welcome. Pleasure to be here. Monday night, the Plan Commission okayed a proposal to raise three buildings on North Carroll Street, and the decision was unanimous. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. The Wisconsin Historical Society, as I'm sure most all of your listeners are aware, has been working for many years on a brand new state historical museum for downtown Madison. The project has had many twists and turns over the years. Different locations have been considered downtown. Different developer partners, to their credit, the society 
had a very, I think, significant outreach effort statewide to all corners of the state, talking with stakeholders about what they would like to see in a future state historical museum. So what that all culminated in is a proposal just in the last several months for a brand new, what they're calling Wisconsin History Center uh, on North Carroll Street, right on the Capitol Square. So including the former state historical museum uh, at the corner of West Mifflin and North Carroll Streets right at the top of State Street, using that existing building and then two additional buildings uh, immediately adjacent to it for the new history center. So because of the plan commission's approval on Monday, they do have a couple of additional public-facing hurdles as it relates to the city land use approval process. Namely, they have to receive final approval from the Urban Design Commission and then the Madison City Council uh, has to approve what's called a certified survey map to combine these three lots into one, but that is really more of a technical approval. So I think I have every reason to believe that, that the future approvals will, will, will not be problematic and will be non-controversial. I can't say the same about Monday night's public hearing at the Plan Commission where as you're probably aware, there were you know several members of the community that testified in opposition actually to the history center because, and I think only because of the concern about the loss of a couple of buildings that the Historical Society recently acquired at 20 and 22 North Carroll Street. So, so there were several folks that testified from the uh, historic preservation point of view concerned about the loss of those two buildings. And as I said in my testimony that evening, I, I too mourn the loss of the historic resources on North Carroll Street there with the development, but but very much celebrate the new history center and think it will really be much for the greater good for the community, the state, and really indeed the, the country, considering that the society has visitors from all over the, the country and, and the world to access their amazing collections. And, and this will allow for the society to be able to showcase uh, and make available to the public a much greater amount of their vast collections than they have been able to in the past because of their really very small conditions at the most immediate former museum. You touched on the next steps for approval. I did see that the Landmark Commission found these buildings to have historical value. Would this potentially get in the way of the approval process moving forward, or is that less of an official designation? It's it's good question, Faith. It's more the latter. So the City Landmarks Commission back in May did consider the demolition of these three buildings. Again, one is not considered controversial demo. The existing museum site is a more modern building. The other two in question were built in the early 1900s. The Landmarks Commission's finding that there's historic value for, for those two buildings does not set a binding requirement upon the Plan Commission. It's simply, you could say, advisory to the Plan Commission. So that's why the Plan Commission was able to, and as you said, unanimously approve the demolition permit earlier this week was because they were not bound to the Landmarks Commission's advisory opinion. They expect that demolition of the buildings on North Carroll Street would commence in the first quarter of the new year, 2024. Folks will see progress early in the new year, and then the building will take about two years to construct. 
I, I think it's a very exciting project. I'll also mention that the design of the new building is quite dramatic. It's a very bold design using Wisconsin building materials. So it's a really, I think, excellent, uh, bold design uh, as well that, that will, again, house you know, many of the state's historical treasures. I'm also curious, you mentioned a little bit before um, how this proposal and perhaps the idea for the project has evolved over the years. Can you sort of walk me through that? So the Wisconsin Historical Society made it known many years ago. Now, I, I couldn't give you the exact year that their journey began, but started planning for a new facility. They had very much outgrown the existing facility. It always was undersized for their use and the amount of visitors that the museum receives. For example, school children from all over the state have historically come by the busload every year to visit that museum. So they realized there was a clear need a long time ago. For a while, there was a conversation about including a new Wisconsin Veterans Museum in the project as well. Then the legislature got involved, and at the Joint Finance Committee, they objected to the North Carroll Street site, uh, and and the Evers administration and the Historical Society pivoted to, at one point, proposing that the museum be at the site of the current Jeff One building on East Washington Avenue. Then they changed their idea behind that one, and again, legislative leaders were part of this all along the way. The society needed to have a massive fundraising campaign because this is not all funded by the state taxpayers. It's a public-private partnership in terms of the funding. So it's had a, a long history and you know, very excited and look forward to uh, construction finally commencing so that this great resource will be available to everyone in a few years. So would you mind breaking down the public-private funding for me? I saw the, the number $160 million. How much of that would be coming from the private sector? I'm not an expert on that aspect of this at all because it you know, didn't really um, have an impact one way or the other on the city public land use decisions that were required to allow the project to move forward. So I, I'd have to refer you to the... Uh, Wisconsin Historical Foundation and the Historical Society to confirm what those numbers are. But um, suffice to say, it's a very um, significant investment by the state and, our, and its taxpayers. And then likewise, a very significant investment from, from donors, including local philanthropist Jerry Frouchy um, has made a lead gift. Um, but, but I honestly don't remember what the current numbers are. I know that the Historical Foundation is still in the midst of fundraising and uh, speaking with donors uh, so that they can raise the remaining handful of millions of dollars that they need, but they are confident that that will come into course. And and again, the state money uh, will be unlocked. And again, the project has strong support of of Governor Evers and the state legislature. And so they, they don't seem concerned at all about the state building commission approvals or the funding being unlocked to to allow, again, construction to commence. Okay, I think we covered all of my questions. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Again, appreciate the opportunity very much to, to share this with your listeners. Thank you for speaking with me, Mike. You're very welcome. That was Mike Verveer, Alder for District 4. He attended the latest plan commission meeting, where people voiced support and dissent for the demolition of three buildings on the square. The commission went on to unanimously approve the proposal. 
I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. In March, Madison's own Cassandra Dixon was attacked by Israeli settlers while abroad in the West Bank volunteering. Dixon, a member of the Madison Rafah Sister City Project, was walking outside the Palestinian village of Tuba when she was attacked. Now, Dixon is headed back to the West Bank next week as the trial of her alleged attacker gets underway. This last Sunday, she spoke with Worldview contributor Gil Halstead on the subject. So, Cassandra, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So, Cassandra, we've talked to you before soon after this happened, when you came back after the attack there. And I think what I'd like to do, actually, is just to read one of the the recent things that you've written about this that describe the area where this attack happened. And we can talk a bit about why you were there, why you're there on a a regular basis each year. So, I want to read this because I I think that it will really help give us the context. Imagine being one of 569 children living under military occupation in the area of Palestine claimed by Israel as firing zone 918. Soldiers conduct war games around you, tanks crush your family's crops, and helicopters terrorize your sheep and goats. Your home and school, your water well, your barns and animal pens can be demolished at any time. This is life in Masafar Yatta, a group of villages in the South Hebron Hills of the West Bank, 1,150 Palestinians and 215 households. This nightmare began back in the 1980s when Israeli settlers began seizing land for illegal settlements. Israeli authorities obligingly declared part of Masafar Yatta firing zone 918, one of many that occupied 20% of the West Bank. It had nothing to do with security and everything to do with grabbing land. You experienced, Cassandra, a human rights violation while you were there. So I'm just give you a couple of minutes here to describe briefly what happened on March 7th. So I was visiting the village of Tuba, which is inside of the area Israel claims as a firing zone and located in Masafriyat. I was there because settlers in that area have been more and more aggressively, and this has escalated also since I left there, seizing more and more land. So they have been doing that through a combination of occupying the land um, with settler flocks of sheep and goats and by launching violent attacks against people who live on that land, either while they're out with their flocks and also coming actually inside the villages and attacking people in their homes and inside the villages. So that's why I was there. And that particular morning, there were settlers out using a flock to destroy a crop. So it's basically a way of stealing that farming family's crop and in this case, fodder for those animals for the year. So that crop had been planted during the winter the land had been cultivated and that crop grew and was ready for those sheep to eat it and settlers brought in a flock and were day by day destroying more and more of that cultivated crop. So that's what we were seeing happen that morning and there were settlers there but at some point we turned to go back into the village and that's when we were chased and so the person I was with was chased by a settler who was waving an iron bar at him and while I was watching that another settler hit me on the back of the head. Let me clarify. I guess maybe I didn't understand this clearly. So the settlers have their own flock? Yes. I guess it's okay for them to graze their flock on this, what is supposed to be a firing range? They're grazing their flocks on privately owned Palestinian land. 
Right. If there was some logic in the idea that these Palestinian villages are being evicted because they have decided that they want to use this firing zone for live ammunition. But that doesn't apply to the settlers. So these settlers, these particular settlers are from an illegal outpost. Well, all of the settlements are illegal under international law. The outposts are also illegal under Israeli law until they're not. So there are now nine illegal outposts that are in the process of being legalized by Israel, and two of those are in that area. And that legalization will also give them permission to greatly expand. So those are in that firing zone. Like if if there was some theory that, that it's dangerous to be there, well, apparently there's a workaround because they're still allowed to steal that land. If... Palestinians can't absolutely prove use of their agricultural land for a three-year period. That land can be seized as state land and then can be basically given to settlers to use. And that is also happening there. So through an organized way of making people afraid to use their land, through attacking people often enough and causing problems often enough, if they are successful in preventing people from getting out there and also being able to document the fact that they were cultivating that land and they were using those crops to feed their own flocks, then the theft of that land becomes legalized. With these kind of distinctions, the kind of legal and illegal distinctions you're describing, Cassandra, likely to play any kind of role in this judicial process that you're going to be going back to communicate? I would say that the the fact that I was attacked and the fact that people who live there, I mean, just, just this last week, settlers came all the way into right. the village of Tuba and terrorized people inside their homes. They sprayed pepper gas directly into the eyes of old people. A couple weeks before that, they had come and broken into homes with soldiers present backing them up, smashed up furniture, terrified children, destroyed personal belongings inside of houses, and basically just rampaged through the village. So this is like a you know, constant. If it doesn't happen today, it might right. happen tomorrow. If it doesn't happen this week, it might happen right. next week. It's like everyone is going to sleep every single night with the knowledge that that could happen. And um, sometimes there are settlers out at night. You can see lights moving around and, oh, okay, maybe that's the day that they that they come and beat up your mother and maybe it's not. But people are living with that fear all the time. It's a land grab. The rule of law is one of the things I wanted to address in some way, but I guess you're going to experience what that is when you go back. You've not been involved in a, in a legal dispute in a courtroom about this kind of situation in the past. But I mean, it sounds like settlers are not held accountable for actual violent attacks on, on Palestinians. As long as it's on Palestinians, it's okay. It's extremely rare for a settler to be brought to court. And Palestinians, like in these these recent attacks, people have gone and filed complaints. Palestinians have gone. In order to file a complaint, you have to go inside another settlement to an Israeli police station. So Palestinians don't have any access to a legal system of their own representation. So this settler who attacked me is able to attend court proceedings in his own language, in his own country, and that, and it's a civil court. Palestinians who are charged are forced into a military court system, so they, they would attend those court proceedings in a military courtroom, and they're dealing with a military court system that is not from their own country. 
So it's as if, you know, somebody from Canada, right? Like if if my child was caught up in something and uh, was charged with throwing a stone or getting too close to a police car or whatever, would have to be taken to Canada and tried in a military court in Canada, right? This is insane, right? But this is the way it is. And Palestinians filing complaints might go to that police station in that in that settlement and wait for hours and hours and hours in rain or under the hot sun. Um, someone will just refuse to hear that complaint or say, well, we're busy. You'll have to come back the next day right. and over and over and over again. So mm-hmm. even creating any legal record of the fact that they're filing complaints can be very difficult. But in your case, because of your status, the case takes on a different nature than the ones you've just described for Palestinians, right? Um, right. Well, I, I'm the victim <laughs> In this, in no, this, I understand, right? right? So, right, in, but so Palestinians were this, victims but, as well. I mean, you're a different kind of victim, right? Right. Yeah. Well, this, this, um, it is thanks to my U.S. citizenship <clears throat> and my whiteness, and the fact that friends were able to put pressure on elected officials here and Tammy Baldwin's office and Mark Pocan's office put pressure on the State Department, which then turned around and let the police department there know that they were tracking the case. Without all of that, I'm, I'm sure that the settler would not have been charged. Like, I know that for a fact, because in all of the attacks that have happened since then, no settler has been charged. And they, because they weren't attacks on American white women, right? Right, right. <laughs> Exactly. So we hope that there is an outcome of this, uh, of your return visit right now that will have an impact on exactly what you're talking about. We'll have some way to to actually hold someone accountable for what happened. Probably a small chance, right? (laughs) Yes. I mean, I think, you know, even the fact that it's gone this far, and I I hope Uh that there's been, you know, a conversation with Tammy Baldwin and a a conversation with Mark Pocan. And I know friends of mine from other parts of the country have engaged with their elected people. And I I hope even amongst us, we have to address this. This is the the $8 million a day elephant in the room and we don't get to be progressive without (coughs) without looking this in the face so i i hope that maybe that's pushed us that way a little bit and it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with w-o-r-t weather guru rob mcclure Well, temperatures uh, overperformed, as we say, yesterday, reaching 81 degrees in the afternoon, despite uh, cold air advection behind the morning's cold front, and a fair bit of diurnal cumulus as well. I was not expecting anything yesterday past about the upper 70s, but we sure dropped off nicely after the sun went down, reaching 48 early this morning, despite active northwesterly winds or northerly winds which were um, spent the night mixing the lower atmosphere. But uh, 48 was as cold as we've been since back on uh, June 17th, for what it's worth. Uh, Then later in the morning, as the winds veered a little bit more northeasterly around dawn, the fetch coming down the length of Lake Michigan uh, briefly worked just far enough inland to reach uh, central Dane County with some of that low cloud cover that we saw right as we got up. Uh, That cloud cover mixed back out fairly quickly across the uh, eastern parts of the listening area with daytime heating. 
Uh, all of that could be seen, by the way, from up above uh, on the visible satellite image of southern Wisconsin that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage. Made quite interesting viewing as well. Uh, that uh, visible image there is actually the only reason I know about it. Uh, if you have a look at the water vapor image of the U.S., it's linked on the uh, weather web page. That's a few images up above towards the top of the featured graphics. You'll get a nice view of uh, both Atlantic hurricanes at the moment and their trajectories over the past few days. Uh, Franklin, first of all, recurving northeastward past Bermuda currently and uh, steadily weakening now after its quite impressive presentation a couple of days ago when it was nearing uh, Category 5. And then, of course, Adalia uh, push, uh, pulling together uh, just off frame by the Yucatan Peninsula on Monday before beelining north and achieving a, an impressive amount of swirl prior to slamming into the north coast of Florida this morning. That storm is now over about the, the Savannah River region, headed for reemergence over the Atlantic Ocean around Cape Fear later tonight. And then back to the northwest up in our region, you can see a strong punch of jet stream winds diving southeast out of Manitoba yesterday. That's what delivered us this lovely, cool surface high pressure cell that we're currently enjoying. Which, by the end of the loop, if you have a look at the surface pressure fields, which are analyzed in yellow there, uh, sits not only over Wisconsin and the Great Lakes region, but uh, stretches far to the southwest down across uh, Missouri and north Texas and into New Mexico. That rightward-turning pile of air that's sitting in the lowest several thousand feet of the atmosphere is predicted to remain anchored at its southwestern end over the coming days, while the northern end slowly continues to press eastward. So that's going to stretch out the high-pressure cell really nicely in a way that's going to effectively block off the Gulf of Mexico moisture from this region over several days. Meanwhile, the leftward-spinning upper trough that you can see pushing in off the uh, Pacific Ocean across uh, Oregon towards the end of the loop uh, will carry the surface low to its north up over southern Alberta northeastward towards Hudson's Bay between now and the, the upcoming weekend swirling southwesterly winds into it and warming us here uh, steadily in the process with a basically bone-dry air column, little in the way of cloud covers likely to appear, I don't think, until a bit of uh, maybe some higher mid-level cloud starts to blow in off of the plains or west from activity up near the passing low in Canada on Saturday or Sunday. A second upper trough passing uh, further north across Canada on Sunday may throw a weak boundary down our way and slacken the winds uh, perhaps as we get into Monday. But then redevelopment of low pressure to our west after that looks to turn the southwesterly winds on again for the early part of next week. So that's going to extend our warm spell probably until Tuesday or Wednesday. So we've got a warm, dry, and on and off windy period coming up, which um, after a dry summer in most places may pose something of a fire uh, threat as far as weather is concerned. Otherwise, little to take note of during this uh, upcoming seven-day period, really. But on to the particulars, at least briefly. Uh, tonight, clear sky should remain pretty much cloudless through the uh, overnight, allowing temperatures to drop, I think, again to the upper 40s most places on light northeasterly winds coming down near calm as high pressure passes overhead. Uh, I think we're likely to develop perhaps a little fog in the river valleys and other low spots that have water in them, but otherwise uh, we should be clear overnight. Those, those clouds should mix out uh, quite quickly tomorrow morning. 
And beyond seeing maybe just a few cumulus develop briefly from that process tomorrow, uh, the day should otherwise be cloudless, with temperatures reaching the upper 70s on light southeasterly winds increasing to about 4 to 8 miles per hour by the end of the day. Light southeasterly winds overnight should hold temperatures in the low 50s under clear skies. Friday should again be clear with light uh, southeasterly winds very more southerly and southwesterly through the day and uh, increasing to 10 to 15 miles per hour. And that should take temperatures to the low 80s. More active southwesterly winds overnight will keep temperatures in the low 60s going into Saturday with perhaps some high clouds starting to pass above us at that time. And that warmer start on Saturday should allow us, I think, to hit 90 that day, or the low 90s, given southwesterly winds, which will be coming up to 12 to 18 miles per hour by the mid-afternoon. Dew points will begin to come up, but uh, still stay pretty bearable by comparison to last week, just in the low 60s this time around. We'll stay breezy and warm uh, in the overnight, with temperatures hanging up in the upper 60s. And I think we'll again reach the low 90s on Sunday, provided uh, southwesterly winds stay as active as Saturday. And uh, they may lighten up again later in the day or in the overnight going into Monday. And another 90 is possible Monday as well, especially uh, since little beyond the passing higher mid-level clouds is expected in the sky right from now through on through that period. At the moment, at the station down here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 68 degrees. The dew point temperature is 46. Winds are out of the northeast at 7 miles per hour. Uh, completely clear overhead. Uh, barometers at 30.05 inches of mercury and uh, falling slowly. It's now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to September 1968, when the city started to probe claims of racism at its police department. Much of the east side was on strike, and the UW prepared for another tense term. Stu Levitan has the headlines from 55 years ago this week on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, the first week of September, 1968. The classroom bells ring for 33,712 pupils as the Madison schools start their last full year of the decade. It's also the last year for Central University High School, closing after a century of service. At its peak, the impressive facility on Wisconsin Avenue had an enrollment of about 1,400. This year, about 600. The last class to graduate in June will number only 185. About half of the remaining pupils, and most of the teachers, will be at West High School next year. The remaining students and faculty about evenly sent to East James Madison Memorial and Robert M. La Follette schools. 
And as the city prepares to close Central High, it opens two new elementary schools, named after distinctively different men. The socialist writer Carl Sandburg is the eponym for the new school on Portage Road, north of Highway 51. The isolationist aviator Charles Lindbergh is honored with a school on Kennedy Drive, north of Northport. And the board decides that the next school will be named after the state's greatest conservationist. Aldo Leopold Elementary will open next fall on Post Road, south of the Beltline. Leopold, a longtime resident of University Heights, was professor of game management at the University of Wisconsin and research director at the UW Arboretum. His series of essays on the land ethic, collected as a Sand County Almanac, is one of the seminal texts of ecology. The board briefly considered honoring the ailing former President Dwight Eisenhower before its unanimous vote for Leopold. The City Equal Opportunities Commission begins its investigation into whether there really is racism in the Madison Police Department, as Chairperson Mary Louise Simon appoints a committee of three attorneys to write rules for hearings to start later this month. The Common Council called for the probe following an evening of altercations between whites and blacks and blacks at police at a teen dance at Bree Stevens Field on August 4th after which six blacks and no whites were arrested. The council wants the commission to determine, quote, the extent to which such tension exists, its causes and effect on the city, and asked it to recommend policies to address the problems. Some EOC members want to hire an investigator to look into specific incidents and allegations, a move Mayor Otto Feske successfully blocks by noting the council had explicitly banned the commission from, quote, making any quasi-judicial determination pertaining to any alleged individual violations of the Equal Opportunities Ordinance or police rules and regulations. A Citizens Committee will assist the 15-member commission in its work. Among its members are UW Law Professor Herman Goldstein, Charles M. Hill, Executive Assistant at the State Department of Local Affairs, and UW student Willie Edwards from the group Concerned Black Students. Race relations also remain a focus for the Reverend Richard Pritchard, whose strong support for civil rights may have factored into his recent dismissal from Westminster Presbyterian. The week he's officially installed as the founding pastor at Heritage Congregational Church, Pritchard welcomes a group of young black men from Mississippi for luncheon and community meeting at Crandall's Restaurant. Pritchard's new pastorate numbers about 200, the same size Westminster was when it called him in 1947. The Madison Presbytery dismissed Pritchard in May after agitation by some dissidents at the church, itself now grown to more than 1,700. As the Madison Federation of Labor celebrates its 75th Labor Day, about 1,500 workers at two of the city's three largest private employers remain on strike. The Gisholt Machine Company, number two to Oscar Mayer, has been idle since 1,170 members of Steelworkers Local 1404 walked off the job on July 1st. Eleven blocks down East Washington Avenue, 315 members of the United Auto Workers Local 1329 and 27 members of Machinist Local 1406 struck the Rayovac division of ESB Incorporated on May 15th. All three contracts have wages below the citywide average of $3.41 an hour. The Gisholt steelworkers get 325 
at Rayovac, the machinists, two ninety, UAW production workers, two and a quarter. While the strikes have cost the workers and their families about two million dollars in lost wages, they're not yet feeling any real economic pinch, thanks to weekly strike pay from the unions and paid vacation from the labor contracts. Also, about 500 steelworkers are working jobs from La Crosse to Chicago, and some as far away as Texas. And about half the striking workers at Rayovac are women, most likely earning the household's second wage. The Security State Bank on Atwood Avenue reports no impact on deposits or loan delinquencies, and there's been no demand for deposits at the Gissold Credit Union. Both labor and management agree the parties remain on friendly terms and all say they anticipate settlements before much longer. A bad and dangerous practice from nine years ago resurfaces as police arrest eight juveniles from ages 8 to 16 for having glue-sniffing parties in a wooded area on North Sherman Avenue across from the Northgate Shopping Center. That's where the boys from five neighborhood families bought massive amounts of model glue from various stores. Police who had staked out the area for a few weeks retrieved 200 empty glue tubes and another 100 unused tubes scattered about. Glue sniffing, which suddenly became a fad in 1959, can cause kidney, liver, and brain damage, and an 11-year-old Edgerton boy died in April from the activity. The eight boys, some of whom had previous arrests, are referred to juvenile authorities. As the UW prepares to welcome 34,200 students, a radical downtown alderman warns that Newtonian physics applies to campus politics. Alderman Paul Soglin, a graduate student in history who was beaten by Madison police at the anti-Dow demonstration in October 1967, warns that if the regents, quote, keep deliberately provoking students, there will be trouble. Ralph Hansen, head of UW Protection Security, says he expects, quote, a busy fall and an interesting and provocative year. And Thursday, September 5th, is a big day for the folks across Lake Monona. That's the day a charter ordinance takes effect, and the village of Monona becomes a city. A city of the fourth class, to be precise, which won't actually be operating as such until next April when voters elect the first mayor and six-member common council to govern the 8,178 residents. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening. Our headline writer was David Ahrens. Our reporters were Diego Alegria and Mike Mullen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to Stu Levitan, Gil Halstead of the Worldview Collective. Lauren Hicks is our engineer. Faye Parks produced the newscast. And Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. Good night.